the soap makers don't work for me. They work for themselves. When we need soap for our shop in the States, I place an order with them and they make the soap to order. But their normal business is local to their neighbors and friends. Um, they also like sell it to a couple of retail outlets within Iraq. And, um, and so like they don't work for me. So if I ever have to leave, they still have the ability and the means to support their families. But it's been a really difficult, amazing journey to, to walk with them and watch their businesses grow and watch women around the world support them. You're listening to Upside Down, a podcast on spirituality and culture. No topic is off limits, so join us for unscripted conversations on God's Upside Down Kingdom. Welcome to Season 3 of Upside Down Podcast. This is Episode 42, and I'm Kayla Craig, and I'm here with Upside Down co-host Lindsay Wallace. And while we definitely enjoyed our summer break off, we are really excited to be back into the fall rhythms and launching the third season of Upside Down Podcast. So look for us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month as we discuss spirituality and culture all through the lens of God's Upside Down Kingdom. Today, we are joined by Jessica Courtney, Vice President of International Programs for Preemptive Love Coalition. Preemptive Love Coalition is one of the presenting sponsors for the Upside Down Gathering this fall that's happening in just a couple of weeks at the Wilson Abbey in Chicago. And we are super grateful for their generous support. Jessica, we're really excited to have you join us today. Yes, Jessica. Thank you. So, Jessica, you founded Preemptive Love Coalition in 2007, just straight up in the middle of the Iraq War. And you know, I've done a little bit of homework on you and I love what you said about your passion for fairness and justice has always compelled you toward the broken, forgotten people of the world. And I feel like that is something that Lindsay and I and and everybody at Upside Down Podcast were kind of always trying to march toward. So we're super honored to have you here today. Thanks. It's great to be here. So we have about a million questions, so we've really tried to <laughs> pare it, it down for, for those listeners, those very few listeners who may not be um, as familiar with Preemptive Love Coalition. I would love to just rewind and take it back to the beginning because I heard a rumor that it was you who insisted that moving to Iraq in the middle of the war was the right thing to do and that it would be worth it kind of come what may. Can you just walk us back and tell us about what that was like? What was running through your head when you said that? Well, I think thankfully I wasn't alone in making that decision. Um, some friends had invited us into Iraq to see what, see what it was like there to um, come and work with widows and children who um, just had, had lost everything because of the war. And my husband, Jeremy, went to kind of scout it out and see what life would be like. And we were living in Turkey at the time, so we were, you know, just across the border. And And he came back and he just talked about how amazing it was and how hard it was. And um, just said he didn't think it was a place to bring an 18-month-old. Our daughter, Emma, our oldest, was 18 months old. And, and he said it's really hot and there's no electricity and no water and while there were incredible things happening here and he saw a lot of hope that there wasn't, wasn't any way that he could move our family there. And I had 
been with a lot of friends and we had just been praying, asking, you know, where should, where should we be? Is, is Iraq, is Iraq where, where we could do some, some good things for people? Is Iraq a place where, where we could partner with people to unmake the violence that had been made there over the last few years? And we just really felt like we wanted to move that, that it was a place that we needed to go and be and bring reconciliation. And um, so when Jeremy returned and he was like, I don't think we can do this. We just felt really strongly that we could. And, you know, thankfully we were naive and we didn't know what it was like to live without electricity or water or what it meant for it to be 120 degrees outside. Mm. Um, But, but I think that that, that not knowing and just the trusting that we needed to be a part of reconciliation is what helped us to walk in with courage. Wow. I love that. Uh, Lindsay and I were talking kind of, and I know Lindsay, you had a question um, for Jessica kind of along those lines of being a parent and bringing your kids into a situation that other people might not understand. Yeah. Yeah. And I love what you, what you just kind of unpacked there. And I, some of the feedback that my family has received both from people who genuinely love and care about us. And then from other people who are essentially strangers and don't know us at all is that the risk is too great because of our young kids. And so if we had done, you know, whatever the crazy thing is when we were single, or maybe if we didn't have kids, that would be fine. But making that kind of decision for young children, like that just makes it not okay anymore. And I can only imagine that you got that a hundredfold moving into a war zone. And I just wondered, could you share if that was the case, how you handled that as a mother? And I assume, and I could be wrong, that there have been moments along the way where you've second guessed that decision to stay. And then, so what is it that keeps you there? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a, that's a great question. We, we've gotten so much pushback over the years, so many, so many different things and, and so much guilt just heaped on our heads, not just by family, Mm -hmm. but by complete strangers who are like, how could you children in such an unsafe environment? And, and for a while I did carry a lot of guilt, like, Oh, they're not getting to play soccer. And, you know, my daughter Mm -hmm. loved gymnastics and dance and she doesn't have a gymnastics class or a dance class. And, um, and I just thought, gosh, are they going to like hate us and regret it whenever they're older? Are they going to wish that they hadn't missed out on all of these opportunities? But what I realize as they're getting older and starting to become more independent is that who they are has been so shaped by the lifestyle that we have led. And they don't view this as like our job, as their parents' job. They really view this as our family's job. They love getting to be a part of this. And from the very beginning, they just have come along with us. I always say, I just put them in my pocket and take them with me. And and that's really the way, the way that it's gone. And some days it was hugely in their favor and, you know, they got all the treats and sweets and all of that. And other days have been really hard, but they Mm -hmm. have grown and developed into such incredible young people who really understand um, so much more about the world than most kids their age and mm-hmm. and their perspective and their perception of things that happens. Um, I mean, it challenges me to be a better person because of yeah. they've, they, they see the world. It's just so different even than how I see the world because I've had to train myself to see with different eyes, but these are just right. the eyes that they've developed over time. I love that. Mm-hmm. That's good. How old are they now? 
My daughter just turned 13 and my son will be 11 in just a few months. Wow. Okay. So thinking about, you know, just kind of children and vulnerable children and the children, you know, that we come across and that we see and Jessica, that you have seen that don't have um, access to what many of our children have who do, don't have maybe a, a stable um, parent to be able to take care of them. Maybe they have health issues. Um, I know the beginning of preemptive love, you really kind of came alongside um, children that uh, had special health needs. How did that kind of all come to be? And then my second part of that question is how did that morph into what preemptive love is today? You know, this isn't something that we ever planned on. <laughs> we, we, went, we moved into Iraq to work for a different organization. We never thought we would be there very long. We didn't expect to certainly spend you know, 12 years of our life there and start an organization based out of there. But thankfully, our plan is not what came to pass. And um, one day Jeremy was working in a hotel lobby. I was at home with Emma and pregnant with Micah. And um, he would go to the hotel to do his work because the hotels are where there was consistent electricity and internet. And when he was there, someone approached him. The guy who was serving his tea approached him and, and just said, you know, look, Jeremy, you've been coming here for a while. And I, I just wondered if you would help me with something. And Jeremy was like, sure, what do you need? And he said, I have this little cousin. She has a hole in her heart. She needs heart surgery. There's not a doctor in all of Iraq who can heal her. And she, she needs help. You're, you're an American. You came here to help us. Can you, will you help my family? You know, will you not just help Iraqis, but will you help my family because you know me? And he Jeremy was like, well, I'm not a doctor. I don't really know anything about that. And the guy very invitingly just said, but, but Jeremy, you're an American, right? And Jeremy was like, yes. (laughs) He's like, and you're a Christian, right? And Jeremy's like, yes. Mm. And he said, and you came here to help us, right? And Jeremy was like, yes. And he's like, would you just try and help her? Because if you, if you try and help her and you fail, we've lost nothing. We're Mm. just in the same place where we started. But if you try and you succeed, then you'll have saved this little girl's life. And Jeremy came home that night and he was telling me about her problem and asking, was there a way that we could help? And we didn't really know at all um, anyone. Like we had no idea what to do with a child who needed Mm -hmm. heart surgery. And it took three phone calls that night to find someone who did. Three phone calls. And what we learned from her life is that most people don't need someone to come in and save them or do everything for them. They just need access. And if if we can use our privilege and our power to give people access to the things that they need, that they have inherently inside of them, they have everything that they need to be successful and to take care of their own families. That's mm-hmm. so good. That'll preach. <laughs> so, so you started, you know, helping connect um, children in need of medical work with um, doctors. And one of the things that has really, um, really kind of nestled down and stuck with me is how you started kind of realizing that um, 
kind of using enemies to pave the path of love uh, working on these children. Can you share just a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. And, and it wasn't, I don't think that it was the heart surgeries that led us to want to bring peace. I, I think that we bear this responsibility to bring reconciliation to the world. And for us as Americans moving into Iraq, it was a really special trust that we felt that we were there to bring reconciliation because we, our people had brought harm. Um, It didn't matter if it was justified or not. All that mattered was that the people that we were among felt harmed by the people that we came from. Mm -hmm. And they were suffering as a result of the warfare that had been going on in their country. And we wanted to help bring some reconciliation to that. We wanted to unmake some of the violence there. And, and so that that's a part of who we always have been. And I think when we decided to start working on heart surgeries for children, that, that this was just one outworking of bringing about that reconciliation. Um, And so it was amazing. It was incredible that as we started looking for hospitals to send these children to so that they could get heart surgeries, incredible reconciliation stories happened. We were sending um, Arab children to Israel and they were having their hearts healed by Jewish. So we had Muslim children in the hands of Jewish doctors and they were finding peace and hope there. We were sending Kurdish children into Turkey and there's a historical um, Turkish versus Kurdish people um, conflict. And all of a sudden people who viewed each other as enemies were having to trust each other for the sake of their children. And we didn't send them there to create that trust. These were the hospitals that had the capability to heal these children. And they were doing a phenomenal job healing these children. And then the stories that families would take back into their communities of the enemy, the one who they assumed to be their enemy because of their ethnicity, that they were the one who ended up being the healer. And after a few years of sending children outside of the country for heart surgeries, we realized we weren't accomplishing enough. There were so many children that we would never decrease the backlog if our solution was to outsource the, the, the solution to the problem rather than to train up doctors inside of Iraq. And so we started bringing in doctors and nurses from outside of Iraq to train inside of Iraqi hospitals so that these hospitals would learn and have the capability of serving their own children. And when we did that, we we're sending Sunni children to Shia hospitals and Shia children to Sunni hospitals and Kurds to Arabs and Arabs to Kurds. And we started hearing stories from families like, my son is now one of them because he needed a blood transfusion and he couldn't use my blood. And I just walked out on the street and said, my son needs blood. Will anyone help him? And this man who should be my enemy chose to come inside the hospital and give his very own blood for my son. Wow. And it just story after story after story of seeing people who thought they were enemies come together and support one another and help one another and heal one another. Um, It was really incredible the way that these acts of service could bring about reconciliation. And we were so excited about this work that we were doing. We couldn't believe the success of 
the heart surgeries and the children's lives that were saved. And then the way that the doctors and nurses were learning and capable of doing their, the surgeries by themselves inside of Iraq, we were just kind of um, in the thralls of that celebration whenever ISIS kind of brew up in the desert of Mosul. And, and we were all just completely shocked by that. And in that moment, we had a choice to make. We had to decide, were we a heart surgery organization or were we people who chose to love first? Were we people who chose to love anyway? Were we people who were seeking to bring about reconciliation? And it took our whole team about five minutes to decide, no, like these are our people. This is where we are. And we're here to do whatever the people need. And if they don't need heart surgeries anymore, we're not going to cling tightly to what has been our identity up to this point, because what our true identity is, is that we're people who bring about reconciliation. Yeah. And so we pivoted in 2014 to start meeting the very basic needs of people who are fleeing from ISIS. And it's been, it's been a really amazing um, opportunity privilege to, to sit back and watch the ways that we're starting to see those same stories come to pass just in a completely different act of service. Wow. I love that. Do you have a story that comes to mind as you're kind of looking back of, of that kind of reconciliation with, with faces? Yes. I mean, I think, I think my favorite story of the last four years is, um, I remember, gosh, I think it was 18 months ago in the battle for Mosul. And we got a call that there was this village and they were starving, but they were a village of farmers, um, sheep shepherds, and they, they were starving. And when we went out to ask, what kind of food do you need? What things do you need? The team came back from them and they said, they asked us to feed their animals. They said, if you feed us, we will, if you give us food for ourselves, we'll eat for today, but our animals will die and we'll have nothing to live from or eat for tomorrow. So will you please instead of just sending food to us, will you send food to our animals so that our animals will stay alive and we'll have our livelihoods for the future. And it's very important to us as an organization that we listen Mm. to the needs of the people that we're serving. And it didn't make a lot of sense in that point, in that moment, it didn't make sense to us that we would load trucks up with animal feed and send it out to starving people, but that's what they requested. And so we trusted them to know their needs better than we would And we loaded up those trucks and we sent it out to these shepherds and the animals ate and the shepherds and their children ate. And, um, that they're, you know, they were able to stay at home. They were able to live and continue in their village. And several, I I mean, almost a year later, I was back in that village and I was there with a different people group called the Yazidis. Um, and we were, we needed to buy sheep for them. We were, we also have livelihood programs, job creation programs. And one of the things we do is provide animals. So we needed to provide sheep for this completely different group of people. And these two groups consider themselves enemies. Um, They actually have fought each other in that same land. And because they needed to buy sheep, and we knew these other villagers who we had provided food for their sheep. These men were able to come together and for the first time ever 
have a trade agreement and purchase from wow. one another. And it was this really amazing, beautiful opportunity to sit in the living room with all of these leaders from these tribes. And, and I really thought this is not going well when we first sat down. One of the men started yelling and I couldn't understand him perfectly. And um, my translator's translating to me what he's saying. And, and he's from the, the marginalized, more vulnerable group between the two. He was just saying, why didn't you protect us? You were our neighbors. Why didn't you protect us? Why didn't you protect our daughters? You maybe didn't come and kill us, but your neighbors came and killed us and you didn't protect us. And, and it was so beautiful because the other tribe just received it. Mm. And then they apologized. And, Mm. and what we thought was going to be a very simple, basic step towards one another of just trusting each other to purchase animals ended up being this time of true peacemaking and reconciliation where, where the most vulnerable, the victim in the situation was able to express their hurts over and over and over again. Like it wasn't a five minute conversation. We were there for half the day and they were able to just really express all of their hurt and their pain. And the other men were able to receive it and listen. And they responded so well and then we ended the day with them chasing around the sheep and selecting the ones that they wanted and being able to purchase from them. And I just still am amazed at how the decision to feed sheep a year earlier ended up being something that led to peace later down the road. That's amazing. <laughs> That's a, yeah, I'd say you have a, yeah one or two stories yeah. to share. <laughs> just a couple. <laughs> What I love so much about this, though, is, I mean, from the minute you started talking, like everything that you have said, I've been thinking in my head, only God could do that, right? Like only God could give a mother of an 18 month old this idea to move into a war zone. Only God could take this broken hearted child and heal them in the hands of what should be their enemy and infuse blood of an enemy into another person. Like only God could put these men in this room because of sheep <laughs> to reconcile this brokenness and to provide healing. Like that's how God works. And when we really just step out of the way and let him work and follow him in obedience, like we get to see all these cool things and we get to hear all of these amazing stories. And so I'm just, I'm just at awe of like how awesome God is when we, when we just follow, you know, like when we do, when we do those things. And one of the things that you said in particular is that you, it didn't make any sense to you to send animal feed to starving people, but you trusted the people that they knew their needs better than you did. And I think about how that in its own way was unmaking violence that Christian missionaries have done all over the world, right? In the name of the Great Commission. And so you're in this potentially hostile place because you're an American and you're trusting the people. And so even that, like in its own small way, like you trusting those people was unmaking violence that has been done by other people in the name of God. And it's just, it's all really incredible to bear witness to. So thank you for sharing all of this with us. It's pretty amazing to get to live it out. You know, when we first moved into Iraq, I had this idea of all the things that I was going to do and I was going to offer and all that I, Oh, I know. 
I do Lindsay, know. Maybe you should share what <laughs> your background is. I don't know if Jessica knows your kind of what your. Yeah, I mean, just briefly, my family moved from Kentucky, where we were um, basically foster parents and advocates for at-risk kids. We moved. Um, we joined a Christian order among the poor, and so now we live um, in a very under-resourced neighborhood in inner city Miami. Um, so I, I can completely relate to, I look back on some of the newsletters that we sent or, you know, things that I even posted online. I'm just like, Oh my gosh, what was I thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, why didn't somebody tell me, but you have to, you really have to live through it and, um, experience it, I think before some of that stuff takes root. But so Jessica, what is, um, why is it important to set aside our own motives and objectives and listen to whoever it is we're listening to listen to somebody who we don't understand you know for our listeners there we have a couple overseas listeners but a lot of them are here in the states and probably pretty comfortable and they don't have but they have enemies, right? Like we all have people we disagree with. And when we step out of our echo chamber, why is it important to, um, yeah, to listen when we're kind of trying to heal hearts and love anyway and kind of step, step toward reconciliation? I think the reason that we have to start with listening is because it starts us in a humble receiving posture instead of a, a know-it-all handing out posture. Um, so, so like I was saying, I went into Iraq thinking I had so much to offer and I just had no idea how impoverished I was. I had no idea what a small view of God I had and how much my neighbors had to teach me. Um, I had no idea how just how small my entire world was that I was viewing everything based on my small little life. And God was doing something incredible in all of the lives of everyone around me. And if I don't start with listening, then I can't see from someone else's perspective. And it's only from seeing in their view and their eyes, understanding what they have experienced that I can begin to truly see who they are and who God has created them to be for that moment, Mm -hmm. you know, right, right in front of me. And we don't get to reconciliation. We don't get to any kind of understanding when we're just talking, when we're just giving, we only get to understanding when we're willing to listen to other people first. So as we think about, um, you know, you said ISIS kind of came in and it, it kind of surprised you and you kind of had to, to pivot and think bigger. And as you were doing that, you began forming relationships with displaced women and something kind of cool came out of that. And I would love for you to share even just briefly about how that happened and what it looks like, because I I've been the recipient of getting to hold piece of soap in my hand and just marvel at all of the creation that made that happen. So can you share a little bit about the Sisterhood Collective? Yes. That little bar of soap has changed my world. Um, 
this was, I'll t- <laughs> it's funny, this ties into completely what we were just talking about because it's also one of, it starts with one of my biggest failures. Um, Those make the best stories. <laughs> at least we can learn from it, right? Yes. <laughs> we all have them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Early on uh, in 2015, I met a group of Yazidi women, um, an entire family and extended family who had fled from from ISIS and so many of their family members were killed. They arrived 20 minutes outside of our city with nothing, completely traumatized. All of these children, two of the women pregnant. When we met them, um, there was a set of twins, a little boy and a little girl sleeping in vegetable crates with no blankets. And um, they just needed so much help. And so we did what we did. We helped, right? And we brought carpet and blankets and beds. And then we started bringing food. And one of the most expensive things that these babies needed was formula. Um, Another little boy was born just a month Mm -hmm. after the twins. And he was so sick and he wasn't getting enough nutrients from his mom. And so the doctor prescribed a special formula for him. And we were helping to purchase this formula for the families. And one day the doctor changed that formula and the dad called me and he was like, Jessica, thank you so much for all the help that you've given to us. Could you please see if you can find this formula? The doctor told us to buy it. We can't find it, but it's what he needs to live. And so, you know, I like rearranged my whole afternoon. I get childcare for my kids and I go out and I spend four hours looking for this particular formula And it is not anywhere to be found. And I am like doing my best to find it. I'm so frustrated. I can't find it, but I need to get home because the babysitter's leaving. And so I buy the next best formula that I can find. And I take it out there and I'm proud of myself because I'm doing the right thing. And I walk down the dirt strip to their tent and the dad walks out and I hand it to him and he opens the bag and he looks inside and he closes the bag and he hands it back to me. And he stomps off. He doesn't say one word. And I am so angry because I have done everything for him that day. Right. <laughs> and his wife comes running out mm-hmm. and she takes it from me and she's like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And she looks inside and she's like, please don't be mad at him. He just wants to be able to provide for his own children And instead, we sit here waiting for people to bring us all of the wrong things. They bring us the rice our children don't like. They bring us the beans our children don't like. We can't can't buy anything for our own children. And I realized in that moment that I thought I was doing something good, but I had failed to listen beyond the needs that I could see with my eyes to really understand what their needs were. And I realized in that moment that they needed jobs. Mm. They needed to be able to provide for themselves. This wasn't anything that we really knew about. Um, We'd never done job creation before. And, and yet I knew we had to figure something out for these families. And so, you know, I kissed her and I went home and started talking with Jeremy about what does this look like? How do we create jobs for them? And we went out and we started talking to the men and the men were like, we used to build houses. We, we don't know how to do anything. What can we do? And 
I was like, well, I can't start a job with you unless you know what you want to do. Like, I can't tell you what to do. So I left and we went back and forth with the men and they just couldn't decide what they wanted to do. And so I went to the women. I was like, what do you guys want to do? (laughs) Let's make a decision together. (laughs) And they too, they were like, well, we cook and we clean, but we didn't go to school and we don't really know very much. And I said, well, is there something your moms did that you would want to do? And they said, well, our grandmas used to make soap. Maybe we could make soap. That's like cooking. And I said, great. Hmm. Do you know how to make soap? And they said, no. (laughs) And I said, okay. (laughs) YouTube knows how to make soap. So, um, oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So, a friend and I researched how to make this very local Iraqi soap. Um, It's just olive oil and water. And um, I'm trying to think of the English word for it and lye. (laughs) And (laughs) we we taught ourselves how to make soap so that we could teach these women how to make soap. And we went out and we taught the women how to make soap. And out of the six women, two of them decided they could do it. So we left them all of the tools that they needed to make soap. And I said, I'm going to come back next week and I'll buy all of the soap that you made. And, and I tried to convince the other women to try and make soap. And they were just like, no, we're too scared of it. You know, that's a lot of work. I'm not sure I can do it. And, and so I left kind of disappointed that only two had decided to take on this job. And when I came back a week later, there Mm. were just all of these silver trays covered in the most beautiful, most pure bars of soap I've ever seen. And I paid those women more money than they could count that day. And Mm. they were so excited and everyone else is looking on and they like took their head coverings and covered their face under their eyes. They're like covering their mouths because they were so happy that they finally had made it. But you could still tell, Mm. you could tell they were smiling because they had the wrinkles next to their eye. (laughs) And it was, it was really such a beautiful moment because they were empowered to be able to take care of their children. And as I was walking away from that tent, all the other women came up to me and they were like, we want to make soap. (laughs) And I think they had just finally seen these two brave women just kind of, you know, paved the path for them to be able to see what they could accomplish uh, by starting their own business as well. Yeah. And these first, I don't know, 200 bars of soap have now grown into this incredible business for our soap making families and uh, for our donor community around the world to just be able to hold something tangible that has been made by our displaced friends in Iraq. And it's, it's really beautiful. I love to be able to connect the stories of our soap makers with people who are buying the soap here in the States and then back from the people who are buying the soap in the States back to the soap makers. They're so excited every time that we have a large order placed, but it was always important to me that we, it it still is very important to me that any job we start is something that has local value. So they didn't, mm-hmm. they didn't start making yeah. soap for us to send to America. And I was actually really resistant to send any here to the States at first because mm. I, didn't, I don't want that dependence on me. The soap makers don't work for me. They work for themselves. Mm-hmm. When we need soap for our shop in the States, I place an order with them and they make the soap to order. But their normal business is local 
to their neighbors and friends. Um, they also like sell it to a couple of retail outlets within Iraq. And, um, and so like, they don't work for me. So if I ever have to leave, they still have the ability and the means to support their families. But it's been a really difficult, amazing journey to, to walk with them and watch their businesses grow and watch women around the world support them. Yeah, I love that. One of the things that I really love about preemptive love is that you guys don't shy away from the hard. I mean, in fact, you run towards it. But there's a, um, I guess, a tagline on your website that says the world is scary as hell. Love anyway. Um, and I just think that it's a, it's like this con- true admission that things in the world aren't right and they're jacked up. And yes, it's scary, but we have to love anyway. I was wondering if you could talk about the importance of admitting first that the world is scary and how meeting people where they are might lead us to love anyway together as a more honest people about just our current geopolitical climate or whatever situation we might be finding ourselves. Well, um, I don't talk about this a lot, but it's something I've started talking about more. Um, I live scared every day. Like I struggle with anxiety so much and it probably sounds weird coming from the girl who lives in Iraq, but I, I really (laughs) struggle with anxiety and sometimes just getting out of bed is so hard for me and walking out my front door to engage the world Mm -hmm. because I'm afraid of everything. But I think one benefit of growing up afraid of everything is that I've gotten good at telling my fears to that they don't control me. And mm. and I think that that has helped mm. me to walk out into my adulthood with that with that kind of um I I guess it's a skill to say like I am not going to let my fear control me. I'm going to let truth direct my steps. And, and unless I'm willing to take those scary steps, one step at a time towards people who might scare me or might be different from me, I'm always going to be afraid of them. But what I've learned is whenever I walk towards fear and walk through the fear that I come out the other side, less afraid. And whether it's my next door neighbor who might disagree with me politically or religiously or someone who looks completely different than me on the other side of the world. Um, I have never, ever come face to face with someone who chose to attack me rather than enter into a dialogue with me. And, and I find that, that if I'm, if I'm just willing to take that step towards them, then more often than not, someone is willing to take their own step back towards me. Hmm. Jessica, this is, um, something that I've been wondering, but what do you see in your home and in your community in Iraq that you wish that we could see? I think the thing that I wish everyone could see wherever they are, I don't think it's just about Iraq, but I think I wish that we could really look at each other and see the image of God in one another. I think so often we think that people have to agree with us in order for them to bear the image of God. But God created each and every person in his image. And there's not a conversion point or a goodness point or a belief point 
at which we start to bear the image of God. We just are image bearers of God. And if I refuse to acknowledge that image of God in my neighbor or my enemy, I actually miss out on a piece of who God is. Yeah. And I have learned so much about who God is through the experience of other people, through other people's experiences with God and through the experience of um, just experiencing who God is in other people. And I just, it, Mm -hmm. it continues to surprise me. It continues to astonish me whenever I will just sit and wait for that, um, how much is revealed to me, how much I learn and how blessed I am to walk away with that bigger understanding. You know, I don't ever want, I don't ever want to just be stuck in my experiences of life and my experiences of who God is and my experiences of my neighbor. I want to see a fuller picture because I know there's so much that I miss whenever I just look from my perspective. Um, people in the Middle East are so hospitable, so beautiful. And I, I just have been welcomed with a kind of welcome that that is impossible for me to offer to others. I try, I try to learn, but I haven't been raised in that way. And, and I just, it's, it's an incredible welcome that I wish everyone could see and experience for themselves. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that and just sharing with such a posture of humility. Um, I mean, I have a lot personally to learn from you and I'm sure Lindsay, you you agree too. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Maybe you haven't figured out, but I'm like, wow, Jessica, what you're sharing is like cutting me to the heart. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, Is there anything else that you would love our listeners to know about how they can learn more about preemptive love and how they can support um, the peacemaking that you guys are doing all over? Yeah, I would just say that if you have enjoyed listening to this today and if you want to hear more good stories coming out of the Middle East, um, that we would love for you to come and join us and sign up for our newsletter at preemptivelove.org. We work really hard to tell true stories about reconciliation and change that's coming out of Iraq and Syria. Um, We talk a lot about loving our enemies and loving anyway and, um, yeah, there's just more stories like what I've been telling here. God, it's so good. I feel like we could talk forever. You want to just keep going? We got like three more hours in yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're not busy at all, so it'll be fine, right? <laughs> well, Jessica, thank you so much. Lindsay, is there anything else you want to jam in on our conversation before we let Jessica go? No, I I mean, yes, but no. <laughs> we can do it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for being on Jessica and joining us. And thank you to our listeners who I know will um, really listen to your words, Jessica. And for those of you who are listening, please go and and follow, follow on Facebook, follow on Instagram, the pictures and the stories are things that you're going to want to hear and you're going to want to see. And they help, they help me feel like I can I can believe in hope when everything else feels really hopeless. So Mm. go, you won't regret um, following them. And this is kind of, this is it. This is the end of our conversation. Lindsay, is there things that uh, we should share with our listeners before we wrap up? 
Yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening to this first episode of our third season. Like Kayla said, we're excited to be back. One of the easiest and also cheapest ways that you can support us um, in just having more conversations like this is by heading to iTunes and leaving a review. Even if you don't listen to your podcasts on iTunes, those rankings um, just help get the podcast in front of more people. And if you'd like to support us financially to keep the Upside Down Podcast ad-free, you can go to UpsideDownPodcast.com backslash give and you can pledge just a few dollars a month really does help pay the podcast bills and keep the conversations going. We are excited mm-hmm. about our next episode. I actually tried to log in and just listen to it myself the other day because I needed to hear it again. <laughs> um, a conversation about vulnerability with the incredibly wise and compassionate Pastor Mandy Smith. So be sure to um, be looking for that in a couple of weeks. And we are super excited to see many of you in Chicago on September 21st and 22nd at the Wilson Abbey for our first ever live event, the Upside Down Gathering. And we'll be joined by Preemptive Love Coalition's Key Relationships Officer, also Upside Down Podcast favorite guest, Diana Ostrike. (laughs) We'll share more of these stories about unmaking violence and lead us all toward a posture of peace. And even if you um, aren't able to get a ticket for those two days, if you live in or near Chicago, please join us Saturday night for that free Micah Bornet concert at the Wilson Abbey. That's Saturday at nine o'clock. Bring your friends, bring your neighbors, bring strangers to listen to Micah. And we're online at UpsideDownPodcast.com and UpsideDownPodcast on Instagram. You can also join our private listener group, Upside Down Tribe. Just search on Facebook. We'll let you in. We do a lot of processing of the conversations we have on air then with kind of people that are listening and processing. And I think we'll have a lot um, to talk about. Jessica gave me a lot to, to think about and process. And I'm sure that a lot of you will be thinking about this as well. So you can connect with more than 700 women and men who just want to keep having these conversations on justice and community and faith in God's upside down kingdom. So Jessica, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for all that you guys are modeling and teaching with Preemptive Love Coalition. And for our listeners, thanks for listening, and we will see you again next time.